If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. The call to recover parts of his past couldn't be ignored. There were provinces that needed his aid, but Link decided to take a detour to see if he could remember something from before the calamity. The first picture in the camera is clearly before Hyrule Castle, so he tracks down its precise location. It's the closest he's been to the epicenter since awakening. The ancient guardians that still patrol around the castle are highly destructive and make it nigh impossible for anyone to get too close. But he finds the spot in what looks like an abandoned site where ceremonies were once held. It only takes a few moments before a piece of his past returns to him. And what he remembers is difficult. It's the day of his knighting ceremony. It's just the champions, Zelda, and himself. But this isn't a warm affair. Something is very wrong. Mifa had been so kind and welcoming to Link, but something about Zelda is off-putting, and the face of Verbosa reflects the strange nature of her words. Daruk is the first to point out the elephant in the room. Zelda speaks like they've already been defeated. While the Rito champion Rivali doesn't care much for the new swordsman, Urbosa actually says why Zelda is so averse to him. He is a reminder of her own failures. Link is precisely what he needs to be, and Zelda is a far cry from what she's been told to become. From the very beginning, things were tense. This wasn't really expected. Knowing how things ended 100 years ago, with their failure to stop Ganon, and seeing how his part started, puts an even more depressing light on the past. So for now, he's going to hold off on finding more of these memories. There's a lot that still needs fixed in the sadness of the past, but it can wait for now. He will return to this pursuit when things are maybe a bit more hopeful in the land. Now, Impa had mentioned that Death Mountain was having a hard time of things, but first he will go towards a massive flying thing. It takes him to the northwest, nestled into the traversable region of the Hebra Mountains. The Rito reside here. Farther north is a viciously cold and inhospitable landscape, but the Rito have established their homeland southwards enough that the land is lush and for the most part they're left alone by the outside world, save a few hardy travelers. This was the homeland of the champion Rivali, the most humble, hardworking, and sensitive of all Hyrule's inhabitants. He wouldn't have known how to describe graciousness because it was so ingrained in him that he thought it was just a part of being alive, which is absolute sarcasm. Rivali was insufferable in ego. His unwillingness to concede anything was obnoxious, but he did call a spade a spade and he was a damned good archer. Whatever killed Rivali must have been vicious, and it would be within the Divine Beast, which is clearly the massive flying thing around the region, but how does Link get up there? He can't fly, so instead he'll go to the village and seek help from the Rito. Rivali was a rough character, but he wasn't a good reflection of what the Rito people are like. One of the first guards that Link meets readily tells him about the thing in the sky. That's their divine beast, Vameto. But it only recently reappeared, and when warriors went up to check it out, it started shooting things down. Now they're all landlocked and have no idea how to handle this situation. Being forced to stay low to the ground has been demoralizing for them. Those that reside amongst the ramps and heart of the village are welcoming enough, and plenty ready to do business with a Hylian. The chief of the Rito is a fellow named Kennelly, and he recognized the object at Link's hip as a Sheikah Slate, so he assumes Link to be a descendant of one of the old champions, and that means, well, maybe this Hylian can help them. Kennelly asks Link for aid in stopping the divine beast La Meadow. Two of their warriors recently tried to make it up to the construct to see what could be done, but one of them was injured, and he's afraid that the other one is going to try making it up there again, this time alone. So he sends Link to see the stubborn warrior, the one called Tiba. Perhaps working together, they can figure out the situation. Well, Link tracks down Tiba's wife, a Rito named Seiki. She tells them that her husband has gone up to the flight range up on the mountain and gives them a bit of direction on how to get there. 
It kicks up a memory for Link of the Champion Rivaldi 100 years ago, and he was such an ass, so full of himself. It was like a fear gripped him that if he didn't sing his own praises, then no one would. Rivaldi resented that he was meant to aid Link, not be a direct opposition to Ganon himself. The thought that someone as grand and skilled and smart and humble as he would be a sidekick was distasteful. To him, all they would need to defeat Ganon was his mastery of the skies and his bow and arrow, I guess? Rivali's solution to his insecurity is to challenge Link to a battle of skill, which will take place upon the Divine Beast Va Meadow, which is in the sky, which requires flight to get to, which is the one thing Rivali has over Link, so Link can't even get up there. You see the rhythm in his logic? Pro tip from tip, no one likes a braggart, don't be a Rivali. Well, the memory cements to Link that there's no easy way up to the Divine Beast. He will require aid to reach it. His best bet is still Tiba, so he begins the ascent to find him at the flight range. And oh boy, is it a chilly climb. Good clothes or some hot food is needed to keep Link nice and warm. But at the flight range, he does find a lone figure sitting peacefully, working on his bow. He's not very welcoming to Link, nor is he unkind like Rivali would have been. The hero offers Tiba his aid, telling him that he too wishes to stop the Divine Beast. It's a hard sell to Tiba, who sees him as just some random Hylian. Tiba will not stop trying to reach the Divine Beast, regardless of injury and regardless of the Chieftain's requests. He makes it very clear to Link what his intentions are. His obligation as a warrior will not permit him to stop. He will only return to the village once the Divine Beast's threat is over. Though he thinks it a foolish idea and has serious doubts as to Link's abilities, Tiba offers to let Link aid him if he passes a test. Use the updrafts around the flight range to move around and use his bow to shoot down targets. It's not really a walk in the park, this is a stern challenge to Link. He has to be mobile and capable of combat without the promise of solid land underneath him. And there's no Prince Sidon here to pick him up and drive him around. He has to be completely independent, but he does it. It takes a few tries, but Link is able to shoot his targets and retain altitude. So, Tiba agrees to his aid. The two will work together in stopping Bob Meadow. So, what is the plan? Well, Tiba will fly Link towards the Divine Beast, which has already put all of its shields up. He will draw cannon fire on himself, giving Link the chance to shoot and destroy them. It's a seriously risky plan that requires them both to be in harm's way. But unless they can bring down its defenses, there's no way to even reach the Divine Beast's body. There are four in total that need to be destroyed, but just because Tiba is flying interference doesn't mean that the cannons will automatically lock onto only him. Link has to get close enough to double tap the cannons, but not too close because that would lead to a big ol' ouch. While the Zora Divine Beast upped its tactics with each pass, Va Meadow stays pretty much the same as each cannon is destroyed. The cycle is predictable. After the last one explodes, the shield around the Divine Beast comes down. Tiba was hit hard enough during their approach by a cannon shot that he has to retreat back to the flight range. He knows his limits, and he'll be of no help aboard the Divine Beast. He wishes Link luck and takes his leave to tend to his own wounds. Link lands, unlocks the travel gate aboard the Beast, and then is greeted by... Ravali, or rather, his spirit, as condescending as ever. He directs Link towards obtaining a map of the beast, much like Mipha had done, and much like the other divine beast Varuda, Va Meadow is a practice in problem solving. Once Link has a map of the beast, he can use it to turn his wings up. Then he can use gravity to get past obstacles. This place wasn't meant to be traversed by anyone without wings, though there are a few bypasses Link can use to carry him from point A to point B. Without his paraglider and training on how to use the winds that draft throughout the beast, though, he would be stuck on this one. Much the same as before, he uses his Sheikah Slate to activate terminals around Va Meadow. The corruption from Ganon is still deeply threaded into it, and it needs a good restart to force it out. With time and patience, Link reaches every single one of them. 
and in the courtyard of the beast under the bright shining sun, the terrible foe that killed Rivaldi 100 years ago makes itself known. This is the Wind Blight Ganon. It's up to Link to dodge through its remarkably accurate shots. The blaster on its arm is one hell of a weapon. It keeps him on the defensive, having to choose the time that he can shoot at the Wind Blight. Should he land a good enough hit, it will stun the beast long enough for some melee hits, but Link has to be quick in his approach. This is a far more drawn-out fight than the previous Blight. It's a tougher test of Link's fortitude. At the halfway point, the Blight ups the ante, and Link is out of arrows. If stationary for too long, the Wind Blight will send little mini-missiles out at the hero. But the monster is vulnerable to attacks from above, should Link be able to glide over it. The two have a back and forth of projectiles and aerial attacks, but the Wind Blight makes a grave mistake in teleporting next to Link in the field, leaving itself open to a barrage of melee hits. This costs it everything. Link destroys the Wind Blight, freeing Va Meadow from its control and avenging the death of the champion, Rivali. Speaking of which, he finally gets to step foot into Hyrule again, so to speak. He's been dead for a century, but at least now he's no longer trapped by the Blight of Ganon. And he's a bit more approachable now, but just a little bit. Rivali is just... he's Rivali. He gifts to Link a special ability though, his Gale. This will allow Link to throw himself high into the sky to reach new heights and glide much, much farther than before. But like Mipha's Grace, it has limited uses before it must recharge itself. Rivali will now begin preparations for an attack on Ganon. When the time is right, he and Va Meta will be ready to aid Link against the evil within the castle. In his own weird way, Rivali encourages Link to keep going. He has a long ways to go and the princess has been waiting for him an awful long time. After Link's departure, Rivali brings Va Meadow down from the sky to perch upon a mountaintop. The Rito can return to the sky with no fear of the Grand Divine Beast. Va Meadow locks onto the castle, locks onto where Ganon is. When the time comes, it will join the fray against the beast and Rivali will have his ultimate revenge. In the peace that has come with freedom and victory, Rivali admits to himself that Link was able to accomplish what he thought was impossible. The hero reached the Divine Beast without his own wings, he killed the Wind Blight, and he freed both Meadow and himself. He didn't realize just how lucky Link would be, and despite his own ego, Rivali wishes for Link that his luck holds out. For everyone's sake. Link's departure from the Rito homeland is a quiet one. He decides that next he will journey south to warmer lands where he's heard the Gerudo have established themselves. Flying down from surrounding mountain peaks, Link gets a broad picture of what's happening down in the Gerudo Valley. There's clearly a divine beast roaming the desert, kicking up one hell of a sandstorm, and it's very close to Gerudo landmarks. The lower he gets, the hotter it becomes, the nice change of pace, until it gets way too hot for his mountain attire, so hot that it actually kinda hurts. As soon as he lands outside a bazaar, the cries of the Divine Beast pierce through everything. This is Van Naboris, and it brings with it strikes of intense lightning upon the surrounding desert. Just approaching it would be madness. What's before Link is the Karakara Bazaar, a good resting point for those heading into the Gerudo city up ahead. But one of the guards of the bazaar warns Link that the city is only welcoming to women. He will not be granted entry, no matter his business there. She does disclose to him that the Gerudo are very concerned that the Divine Beast will change directions and go towards one of their settlements. The size of it and the storms it bring would devastate anywhere that it goes. But all they can really do is watch it from a distance. Well. Not being able to get into the city is a bit of a problem. Link needs to speak with whoever the current leader of the Gerudo is, or maybe their military captain. Someone has to know more about Vanaburis, and he needs to get in. 
While men are not allowed in the city, that doesn't mean that the Gerudo object to their presence. Women of all races are welcome in their cities, and men are just fine within their territory so long as they obey Gerudo law. There's no vitriol, it's just firm rules. Outside the walls of the city, Link comes across a man that's sort of lurking about. He wants to get in, but of course he's had no luck. But he does know the tale of a man that did manage to get in. That man is someplace around the valley. He can sometimes be spotted on the road between the bazaar and the city, but that's really all he knows. So, off the hero goes, searching for any men on the road that he can question. But he finds his answer within the bazaar, atop the general sword during the early hours of the day. Vilia is clearly not a Gerudo, but wears their attire. That in itself isn't entirely odd, though. It's light and breathable, it makes for the perfect desert attire. She isn't willing to help Link track down any men that go into the city, but is more approachable once Link tells her how wonderful she looks. And Vilia sells the kind young man his own set of Gerudo garb. She's all too happy to help him look as fabulous as she does. It really is an adorable outfit, and in this guise, Link can enter the city. Vilia welcomes him back if he wants more clothing or perhaps company at lunch. Many centuries passed, the Gerudo were far more cloistered and confrontational. Trespassers on their lands were taken prisoner, if not outright killed, and they were forced to observe the rebirth cycle of their king, the one called Ganondorf. When the beast broke away from his cycle of rebirth and reincarnation, well, the Gerudo were free. They no longer had to live under the dark clouds of an evil king, and they changed because of it. Now, they're open for business and all women are welcome in their city. And outside their gates, trade flourishes with the merchants of Hyrule. It's not all that uncommon for the Gerudo to leave the valley too. They go into different regions for trade, adventure, to find a spouse, to set up a new life, all sorts of things. They've evolved and thrived, and now are ruled by a chief that is truly one of their own. 100 years ago, it was the champion Urbosa that led them. She was a spectacle of a woman, a great fighter, respected amongst her people, and a wise ruler. She was deeply mourned by the Gerudo after Ganon killed her. Who leads the Gerudo now is a descendant of Urbosa, a very young lady named Riju. And ever at Riju's side is Buliara, the Spearmaster, a powerful warrior well-tempered to guide and safeguard the young chieftain. Riju immediately recognizes that Link isn't a common traveler and is very to the point with him asking exactly what he wants. They've not yet seen through his disguise, so they humor him a bit. Buliara tells Link that the champions that could have done something about their divine beast died a hundred years ago in the Calamity. Riju brings up old stories her mother used to tell, about the swordsman called Link who fell into a deep sleep after that destruction. This traveler before her had said that their name was Link as well, and they have a Sheikah slate at their hip, and Boliar is immediately angered that a man has entered their city. They've seen through the facade. Riju agrees that this is a grave crime, but Link is also a champion of old, and was a friend of the great Urbosa. If he will help them stop Vanaboris, then they can be allies and he may walk the city, but only if he remains in disguise. If Link drops his Gerudo attire, he will be thrown out. Buliara is a bit more skeptical of the situation and asks Riju to have Link prove his mettle. The Spearmaster asks of the chief to send Link on a retrieval mission. The Thunderhome of the Gerudo was stolen by the Yiga clan, and if he can get that back, then it would prove that he is worthy of approaching the Divine Beast, a request that Riju approves. The Thunderhelm is the only thing in all of Hyrule that can withstand the intense lightning strikes from Von Naboris, and it's a cherished family heirloom. If Link can get it back, then they'll let him access Von Naboris. Their guard captain at the barracks gives him further direction on where he needs to go. And then he's off to face down the Great Yiga Clan. The preferred mode of transportation in the desert are sand seals. Not only are they quick and responsive, but gosh dang, and they are cute. The dangers of the desert are also quite unique. 
For example, within the old Arbiter's Ground is a platypus alligator dune worm tremor monster thing called a Moldoga. Turns out there are four of the catastrophes around the valley and a Moldo King if Link is feeling particularly spicy. But for now, he is staying on track. The Giga base is on the northern side of the valley up a canyon. The closer he gets, the more of them pop out of the shadows to try to stop him. A lot of killing takes place in that canyon. But within the base, it's a bit of a different story. The large guards that patrol the grounds will swarm and kill Link. He can't just attack this place head on. So he needs to distract them and sneak through. Thankfully, they love bananas and will happily rush at any that they see. He doesn't have to stay quiet as he goes, but he does need to keep out of sight. Making it through the base and a hidden passage takes him to an open yard of sorts with a massive hole in the middle. This is the hiding, or rather napping spot, of the Yiga clan leader, Master Koga. He absolutely immediately recognizes Link's Sheikah Slate and knows exactly who this intruder is. They've been hunting him for Ganon, and how lucky for Koga that he's walked right into his own little hideout. Master Koga is certainly one of the greatest fighters in all the land. He's athletic, wicked fast, unparalleled in technique, and unbelievably aggressive. He's a spectacle to behold, the likes of which haven't been seen since Majora itself. It requires all of Link's cunning and daring to make it through the trials of Master Koga. He barely, barely manages to defeat the Great One. When the Master begins to channel one final attack that would rupture the very earth they stood upon itself if it went off, it's by the grace of the goddess Hylia herself that Link has spared the carnage. The Yiga clan master meets a graphic end at the bottom of a pit, and with his demise, Link is able to reclaim the Thunder Helm. There's absolutely no reason to remain here, so Link rushes away from the Yiga hideout, thankful to still have his life. It's good to be back within the safe walls of the Gerudo city. The chief has been anticipating Link's return, and he meets her on the walkway in front of her private quarters. His success in retrieving the helm is clear, and Rito discloses a bit more about life as the Gerudo leader to him. She is very, very young to be in a leadership position, and she knows that many of her people doubt her ability to do her job. She knows that she has big shoes to fill and takes her responsibilities very serious. One day she hopes to prove herself to her people. That obligation is upon her, though. She knows that she cannot force people to respect her. The theft of the Thunderhelm was highly distressing, but Link's return felt like a gift from Urbosa herself. Seeing the Thunderhelm on Riju kicks up an old memory for Link from 100 years ago. He remembers a night when Urbosa and Zelda were having quiet time together on the Divine Beast. Urbosa was very close to Zelda's mother, and after the queen had passed, Urbosa grew deeply concerned over the princess's well-being. She was around all throughout Zelda's life to act as a bedrock and a confidant. Link wasn't invited to this visit. By the time he tracked the princess down, it was late at night and she was fast asleep. Urbosa doesn't shoo him away though. She knows that he's just trying to do his job. Though kind, Urbosa was also very no-nonsense. She pointedly asks him if the two of them were getting along, and at this point in time, they were not. Urbosa tells him that his presence and the sword he carries are reminders to Zelda of her own perceived failures. Urbosa knows that Link isn't to blame for anything, but the time that Zelda has put into all of this is just cruel by comparison, her entire life dedicated to fate, and she had nothing to show for it. Urbosa warns that Link had better do his job in protecting her, then a display of her might. To wake up the princess, with the snap of a finger, a great lightning bolt strikes the earth. More than enough to wake the dead. Wow, Urbosa. With the memory past, Link has more pieces to put back together. Zelda really did not appreciate his presence, a truth that doesn't feel very good. But still, he doesn't waver. Riju now has back the Thunderhelm, and the divine beast Vodnaboris has only grown more dangerous in recent days. There's no more time to be wasted, it's time to journey back out into the desert. Plan of attack. 
The Chief and the Hero will need to work together to get him there. She'll draw Vonda Boris's lightning strikes to the helm, so he will need to stay close to her, and once they get to the beast, he'll need to shoot its feet to disable its movement. That's how it draws up power, so if they stop it from walking, then it should power down for the most part. Easy peasy, just don't get too far away because the lightning is pretty nasty, and off they go. Riju has been driving sand seals all her life and does not require assistance in steering towards the Divine Beast. This is not treated like a big race into the storm, because control has to be maintained in their approach. They have to stay together, and Link will need to be multitasking. Once they get closer to its feet, things do get a little bit chaotic. Riju veers around a bit, and the feet of the Divine Beast are a little rough to hit from far away. But so long as Link is within the protective sphere of the Thunderhelm when lightning is called down, he'll be okay. Once they find their groove and they get in close, the two of them succeed in halting the Great Construct. With its feet disabled, at least for now, Vondaboris stops in place and falls to the desert floor. This is a very temporary halt, though. As he begins to climb aboard it, Vondaboris is already getting back on its feet. There's no time to be wasted with this one. Now, let's call Vondaboris what it is. A huge pain in everyone's left ass cheek. Obtaining a map of the area, let's Link rotate parts of the beast, its three interior rings, and like before, he needs to reach and activate all of the terminals within the beast to reboot it and purge whatever blight is within it. It's a time-consuming process full of trial and error, at least it is for those of us who have issues with spatial awareness. The champion Urbosa had full control and mastery over this thing, which is impressive given how complex it is. Vanna Boris is a far greater test of patience than the previous Divine Beasts, but eventually he does conquer it. With all the control units active, he can find the main control unit and purge the system. But what on earth could have killed the mighty Urbosa? What would have that sort of malice? Well, this part of Ganon is the Thunderblind. Urbosa very plainly warns Link that this thing delivered a warrior's death to her 100 years ago and it is not to be taken lightly. She's not exaggerating either. It's extremely fast and holds its guard with a shield. Link has to try and watch its movements, anticipate when it will strike, and perfectly dodge or break through its shield with brute force. The saving grace here is that once Link is able to break through its shield and deliver some hits, the Thunderblight melts pretty quick. It only takes a few successful rounds against it to push it into its second phase. Which is no joke, and it takes the hero a beat to figure out just how the hell to even hit the damn thing. It throws metal rods around Link and launches chains of lightning throughout them. If Link can pull one out and put it in front of the Thunderblight to send the lightning back at it, then he can stun it. That sends it back down to the ground where he can melee strike it. But the Thunderblight is still quick in the air and it can be awkward and difficult to thwart its attacks. When he combines it with his Phase 1 cycle, the fight becomes a balancing act. And like navigating Vondaboris, it requires patience and attention. In the end, the Thunderblight is felled. Both Vondaboris and Urbosa are freed from its control. The terrible storms threatening all of the valley end and Urbosa herself can step out to have a few words with the hero. The once chief of the Gerudo is pleased at these events. Now she can finally see to unfinished business. She has been waiting a century to incinerate Ganon, and Link's storming of Hyrule Castle can't come fast enough. To aid him in this, Urbosa gifts him her fury. It's a special charge attack that will fry surrounding enemies with lightning, stunning them if it doesn't outright kill them. Urbosa has an understanding of what happened 100 years ago that others do not. She can put all the pieces together and see that what took place had to happen. It was the only way that Zelda's powers could awaken, saving the life of someone that she cared for. Their deaths and what happened to Link were all part of that cost, but they were sacrifices they all had to make. This calamity called Ganon was unlike anything the history books and stories told of. It was a necessary suffering. Urbosa tells Link to make sure Zelda understands that all of this had to happen and that it's not her fault. 
and to let her know how proud Urbosa is of her. The parting words of the Gerudo chief are a reminder to take care of the princess and to take care of Hyrule. Now, finally, the champion and the divine beast can stand ready to beat down Ganon. They find a suitable place upon a mountain and lock on. Urbosa's defeat 100 years ago is a bitter essence that still lingers upon her tongue. She knows the tales that Ganon was once born of the Gerudo, and that he served as their terrible king in ages past. The hatred she feels towards him, the same hatred that countless Gerudo have felt before, makes this all the more satisfying. She and her people will have revenge against the evil that once haunted them. She will see to it personally. Only the chief Riju and her spear master Boliara welcome him back and offer thanks for his work. They still worry over Hyrule as a whole and the events to come, but at least for now, the Gerudo are safe. With that, their business is concluded. Link is still welcome to come and go as he pleases while in disguise, but he still has one more divine beast to see to. Up next, Death Mountain. Who would have thought that Death Mountain would be hot? There are technically roads leading up the mountain, but who needs roads when you're the hero of legend? Link eventually lands himself at a mining outpost where a gaggle of Goron are hard at work. Seems that a particular lizard creature has halted their work farther up the mountain, so they're forced to work down here to obtain ore. It's not the best of situations for them. One of them encourages Link to go up and see their boss in the city to find out more about it. And the trip is pretty arduous. There are enemies around the road, it's hot as hell, and the cherry on top are that rocks are falling from the sky. Death Mountain has been acting up, and exactly why becomes clear as he gets closer. The divine beast Varudania is active and extremely hostile. It's been pushing in towards Goron territory, leaving them in a constant state of heightened concern. They've been able to repel it, but who knows how much longer that will work. At the city higher up in the mountain, the Goron themselves seem pretty chill. For all the chaos on the mountain, they seem pretty zen about it. They're open for business, welcoming to outsiders, and willing to answer any questions Link may have. He takes his time with trade and services and goes to see their leader at the start of the next day. The one called Bluto now leads the Goron, and he is a spicy meatball. The Divine Beast's activities on the mountains are stopping them from functioning as a society, and it's downright enraging. And if it weren't for his bad back, then he'd storm the mountain himself and put that lizard in its place, or at least shoot cannons at it. A young Goron named Yonobo helps him drive the beast off with cannon fire, but he had gone to an abandoned mine to the north to fetch some painkillers for Bluto, and he never came back. Bluto would like for Link to let Yonobo know that he is looking for him if he happens to see the Goron. Well, there's no sense in waiting around. Link will search out Yonobo. Maybe he can teach them how they've been driving back Varudania. Why the North Mine was abandoned gets more apparent as he goes. There are rock octopus creatures on the road, things are in a poor state, and the Zolfos have taken up roost nearby. A Goron miner directs Link towards where Yonobo would have gone to. And holy moly, it's no wonder that he didn't make it back. This area is a death trap. It gives them a chance to learn how to use their cool cannons, though. Chucking bombs at blockades and encampments is a good way to spend the afternoon. When he gets closer to where Yonobo should be, he finds that the poor Goron's way out of the cave has been collapsed. And there's someone screaming inside. That's a big ol' mystery solved. Link breaks poor Yonobo out, and the sudden noise combined with a stranger appearing sends him into a bit of a panic, but he's fine. Once he settles down, the two have pleasant introductions, and Link tells him that his boss is looking for him. Yonobo needs to get back to town, but he urges Link to go and talk to the boss about all this. In the very least, there should be a reward in it. Well, Link certainly isn't one to turn down an offer of kindness, so back he goes to see old Bluto. The Goron boss gives Link a few elixirs, and then he tells him a bit about their past, specifically about the champion Daruk, who died 100 years ago fighting Ganon. 
They'd built a monument to Daruk in the side of a nearby mountain, and seeing the champion's semblance kicks up an old memory. It had taken a while for Daruk to get used to piloting his divine beast, but when he got it down, he was scaling Death Mountain like a champ. He had a great love for his homeland and his people. Though he didn't understand everything about Calamity Ganon and the old legends, he was willing to do anything if it meant protecting Hyrule. Even before Link was appointed as Zelda's knight, the two of them were friends. So when Link became a part of the Circle of Champions, Daruk was as pleased as Pi. And his physical strength matched that blossoming kindness. The Goron was a fortress of a being. Not even the falling boulders of the mountain could harm him, and he was attuned enough to the land to realize that when Death Mountain was trembling, it meant that trouble was on the horizon. Snapping out of his memory, Bluto is going on about Yonobo being a descendant of Daruk. He can even use Daruk's powerful shielding ability that they use to chase off Varudania when they fire Yonobo at it through a cannon. Ha. Huh. Bluto asks Link to go talk to Yonobo at Elden Bridge to let him know that he's canceling for the day as he can't even walk right now. But, well, Bluto might not be able to deal with Varudania right now, but Link can. So he will go meet Yonobo, but it won't be to tell him that plans are cancelled. They are going to deal with the Divine Beast. And he is not a minute too soon in his arrival. Yonobo is being terrorized by some Moblin and needs a hand, which Link happily lends. Hearing that the boss won't be arriving is a disappointment, but being told that Link wants to board the Divine Beast is an outright shock. Yonobo tends to struggle with scary situations, but in an act of bravery, he commits to helping Link climb the mountain. Using Daruk's protection makes him a humanoid cannonball, far more dangerous and effective than a ball of metal. Getting both of them up the mountain is a big old task. The Divine Beast has thrown out sentries along the mountain road, and if either of them gets spot, Varudania will start bombing the mountain. Link needs to take each sentry out, which requires a heavy arsenal or a bit of creativity. Then load Yonobo into cannons along the way to shoot the beast and move it up the mountain, away from Goron territory and to some place that Link can physically reach it. Once it's been hit enough, Varudania needs to belly flop retreat back into the magma of the mountain to recharge. It's stationary and Link is equipped enough to handle the intensity of the heat of the mountain, so he plunges into the heart of Death Mountain to save the Divine Beast and deliver his old friend Daruk to freedom. The Goron Champion of Old immediately chirps a hearty hello to Link as soon as he activates the Sheikah Terminal at the entrance. He is thrilled to see Link here. He points Link to where he needs to go first, of course, the map, and then he sends him on his way. But once Link enters the beast, things get dark, literally. There are a few light sources to help him along, but one door at a time, Link lights his way through the beast and he reaches the map. And finally, the doors open back up. Light returns to the interior. Varudania is far more linear than Vanaboris was. It's the same sequence that he's done three times now, activate all the terminals on the beast to purge the blight. This time he's operating over a live volcano though, so it's really important that he doesn't go over the side or miss a ledge, because lava hot and burn real good bad. Once he finds each of the terminals, figuring out how to reach them isn't too tough. By now, he's made these jumps 100 times over in different scenarios, and with all his abilities and tools, there's not a lot that can stand in his way. The hero breezes through Varudania and finally faces off against the final of Ganon's terrible blights. This is the Fire Blight. 100 years ago, it murdered Daruk, and now it will fight the Knight. The Fire Blight tries to stay out of reach, just high enough that Leek can't strike it with the Master Sword. But it has to come down to hit Link, and when it does, it telegraphs what it's doing as though it were moving through molasses. Link rips it to shreds. After he takes out almost half its health pool in one cycle, the Fire Blight changes its tactics. Now it will use flame as well. It launches what looks like mini meteors at Link, but like before, it does it so slowly that 
Really, Link just needs to sidestep it or get behind a pillar to avoid it. The Fire Blight will draw in energy for a little meteor rock, but rather than waste a perfectly good arrow on it, Link lobs a bomb instead, and boom, down it goes to be shredded once again on the ground. This takes a few rounds, but the Fire Blight is a flaccid opponent at this point. With its death, the beautiful Varudania is saved, Death Mountain is quieted, the Goron people are delivered from danger, and Link's good friend Daruk finally free from the clutches of evil. Even in death, Daruk is larger than life in both strength and personality. He's so glad to see Link returned and ready to beat the actual piss out of Ganon. He feels terrible that he wasn't able to fulfill his duties as a champion, that the Fire Blight got the best of him. But now that Rudania is back in his control, he will not let that happen again. This time he's ready to face whatever happens. He tells Link that he's going to take the Divine Beast down the mountain and that once he's at the castle, they'll light Ganon up. But before Link goes, Daruk gives him that special shield called Daruk's Protection. When harm would strike, Daruk's protection will negate or reflect it. It's the very power from the depths of his soul, and now it will live on with Link. Daruk wishes him luck, and he sends him on his way. Free from corruption, the Divine Beast and its champion crawl from Death Mountain together. As the young Kenoba looks on, Varudania locks on to where Ganon resides within Hyrule Castle. Now all four of the champions stand ready to launch an attack. This is the first time in 100 years that Daruk has seen Hyrule, and even after a century, he thinks it looks pretty good. He wonders to himself how his people are doing since the Calamity. He hopes that they're doing well down there. But when he spots Yonobo, one of his own people nearby, it lifts his spirits even higher to know that there are indeed Goron that still call the mountain home. Now, the time to go to Hyrule Castle is near, but first, Link needs to find and confront his own past. Did she always hate him? Throughout his journey, he'd taken note of each picture and where they would be. He'd planned his route for each one and he knew where to go. It was just a matter of doing it now and facing the reality of his past. He already saw the first memory of his knighting ceremony. It was unpleasantly tense. Next, at Lake Colomo, he sees the second memory. He and Zelda are on foot. He walks silently and she talks about needing to go make adjustments at Daruk's Divine Beast. They're still quite early on in their travels and she marvels that such things were built by people but if they were made by people, then they can understand them. And then she stops and sadly turns to Link and asks how proficient he is with his blade, if he can hear the voice inside of it. She sees others as their best hope. She's already counting on her own failure. The next memory is near Rido territory at the Hebra Mountains. Traveling south, he finds the ruins that the picture portrays next to a shrine. He remembers Zelda being here alone. She'd slipped away from him to come study the exterior of the shrine herself. She can't get it open, and based on the outside markings, she believes that only the one who wields the Master Sword can open these shrines, but she hopes she can avoid including Link, and maybe just find a workaround herself. But of course, he was always able to track her down, and at least this time around, she became extremely hostile when he did. She offhandedly accuses him of being unable to think for himself and is putting him into a difficult situation. Obey her or obey the king. She had such contempt for him, it's undeniable even 100 years later. There's a long way to go on these memories, though knowing what happened in the end, how do things get any better after that? The next picture is easy, he spent a lot of time there, the Karakara Bazaar in Garuda territory. He walked right up to the spot where the photo was taken, and he remembers a time when Zelda once again slipped away from him. But this time, she's running from something. Yiga assassins had tracked her down in the desert while she was alone and nearly cornered her. And they're not here to catch her either, they're going to butcher her. If Link had arrived just five seconds later, it would have been a tragedy. 
He was able to intercept them and stop it, but just barely. This was the moment when she realized that she couldn't do this alone, that he had gone to extremes to help her, and that maybe she needed to rethink her approach with Link. Well, that wasn't the worst memory. At least the ending wasn't the worst. So maybe there was some hope there. Maybe these memories aren't going to be pure pain. The next photo is closer to Death Mountain and will take a bit of a climb to reach it. Plenty of time to contemplate and reflect on events and memories. Up the mountainside, the photo location shows him a scene after a battle. Their journeys had been becoming more and more dangerous, and this was the worst one yet. Zelda is tending to a wound on Link, telling him that though he is strong, he is not immortal. The escalation and violence towards them bodes poorly for them. Zelda sees it as an omen that the calamity is near, so they've no time to waste. The next photo is down the mountains, to the other side of Hyrule Castle, in the Irch Plains. And this is a far more pleasant memory than those that came before. The two of them are taking a break, letting their horses graze, and Zelda is playing with the Sheikah Slate, talking about the flowers of the kingdom and their usefulness. Here, an endangered species called the Silent Princess grows. It only blooms in the wild, they've been unable to save it. Then she spots a very rare frog. It's used in food to enhance certain abilities, and she asks Link to just raw dog eat the thing. But frogs are friends, not food. Also, ew. Now, to journey south, near Lake Hylia. Here, 100 years ago, the two of them sat to get out of the rain. Link practiced his swordplay, and Zelda sat contemplating everything going on. Link's told her about his father, how he's walking the same path, and of his dedication to that life. She admired his commitment to the training and fully realized why he was the chosen knight. But she asked him a what if. What if one day he realized that he wasn't meant to be a fighter? Even if it's all that was ever expected of him, if that's all he was told that he would ever be, would he have chosen another path instead? The next image in the slate is vaguely familiar. It's given him a bit of pause. It's a tough one. The architecture looks like Hyrule Castle, but he hasn't really tried to trek there yet. The place is covered in ancient guardians and centuries. It's a death trap, but it looks like it might be facing out towards the west just below the main castle structure. He could get to it from behind the castle rather than going up through the front gates. That would just be a suicide mission. So, why the hell not? Link uses Rivali's Gale to help him cover the moat and the cliffs around the main castle structure. He keeps his distance from the heart of the castle, he's not yet ready for that, but gets a high up vantage point to scout out where this photo could have been taken. It takes a beat, but he finds a broken down walkway that leads towards what turns out to be Zelda's old living and study quarters. Her old research notes were left in the study, still intact after 100 years. Bits of her initial study processes before Link arrived on the scene. She'd met Impa and Pura, learned about the ancient technology and the divine beasts, traveled far and wide to further her research. She believed so strongly that it was the right path forward and did everything she could to assist and understand it. And she was fascinated by the functionality of the Sheikah Slate. They'd spent so much time studying the Shrine of Resurrection, the Divine Beasts, the Ancient Guardians, she'd personally seen to the appointments of the Four Champions, so much life lived before Link's part began. On the walkway outside, Link finds his photo location, and he remembers well what happened here 100 years ago. He and the princess had stood here, looking over the ancient guardians being worked on by researchers. She was positive that they were on the right track, that they would figure this out and be ready for Ganon, but the arrival of her father ruined that positivity. His constant pressure upon her to awaken her powers was suffocating. He chastised her and he tore her down, demanded that she stop acting like a child and return to her prayers. That's all that she should have been doing. And he's speaking to her like this in front of Link, the shame that she must have felt. Her attempts to placate him and explain her efforts were just tossed aside. She and Link departed from the castle after this, 
and her father later expressed regret for this encounter, but he would never get to make amends for it. The next photograph takes him to the Akala Valley, to the Shrine of Power, to a memory of a time farther back when Zelda came here to pray. There was no answer from Hylia, no voice or power, nothing happened. Her grandmother heard the voices of the spirit realm. Her mother said that she too would inherit that power, and yet she heard and felt nothing. For all her efforts and trials, she had nothing to show for it. And here, she expresses her immense frustration with it all and curses Hylia for her silence. All she wanted to know was what was wrong with her. Well, the next photograph is familiar. He's seen the statue before on his way to the Gerudo territory. Venturing back to that area, he easily finds what looks like a decrepit sightseeing spot or maybe a park. This time in the memory, they're on horseback and the sun is going down. Zelda's thanking him for tips on horse riding. She hadn't been able to connect with her horse, but now they're both far more comfortable with one another. At the park, she points out Mount Lineru to Link and says that that's the next stage of their journey. Under the goddess Lineru's decree, no one under the age of 17 is allowed at her shrine, for only the wise are permitted a place upon the mountain. She prayed at the Spring of Courage and of Power. The Spring of Wisdom upon Mount Lineru is her final hope, but she has no reason to believe that this will be the answer. After a life of perceived failure, why think this will be any different? The next day would be her 17th birthday, and so she would go up the mountain. The next memory takes him to the path they walked long ago at Mount Lineru. On her 17th birthday, Zelda ascended the mountain to pray at the Spring of Wisdom, and again, nothing happened. The goddess was silent to her. When they came down from the mountain, the four champions were awaiting them, and Zelda bore her sorrow openly. The champions were all clearly concerned. They all stood ready to do what they needed to do. Zelda was the only one who wasn't and she'd spent almost her entire life trying to be. It was a cruelty she had to continually endure in front of others. It was Urbosa that was the most pragmatic about it, shaking off the tense situation as just a single step in a much larger journey. But it was still difficult for the princess to accept. She was so wrapped up in her own shortcomings that all she could say were words that acknowledged their kindness to her. It was during this immense disappointment, when things seemed at their worst, that the calamity struck. And the princess was horrified. She knew what this meant. She knew what she was supposed to do, that her role was pivotal, and she wasn't ready. The champion Daruk called for immediate action. They would go to their divine beasts and assist Link. They would waste no time in attacking Ganon. Zelda, meanwhile, would be ushered away to safety. She could do nothing to aid them any further, despite her protests. But none of them knew what would be awaiting them at their beasts. They were all walking into a trap, but those were not deaths that Link witnessed. The next and final photograph in the Sheikah Slate is of a forest path. It takes him close to Hyrule Castle. It was the path that he and Zelda took while fleeing the Calamity. And everything had gone to hell after all the champions were murdered, after he failed to defeat Ganon. He sees them running in the rain, covered in filth, wildly trying to escape what's stampeding out of the castle. In a moment of complete despair, Zelda collapses and asks how it came to this. The divine beasts turned against them. All the champions were dead, her father was gone, the castle destroyed, and her people slaughtered. And she felt it was all her own fault for failing to be what she needed to be. Everything she did amounted to nothing in the end, and she was leaving them all behind while she fled with Link. And that was the end. The final of the photos. What Zelda wanted Link to remember, and what Impa had sent him out to do. There was so little happiness in it. Peace was fleeting, and hardship was plenty. So, with his task complete, it's time to go back and see the old woman at Kakariko Village. Impa is pleased at his progress and tells him that he is ready to face Ganon. She regrets that a hundred years ago, she too was unable to save them. She never would have expected Ganon to sabotage them like that, and she's mourned the loss of them all for one hundred years. 
But there's one more. Impa tells him that Zelda left one more image for him to find, but it's outside of the Sheikah Slate. He needed to see what happened before the calamity to understand what ended it. She shows him a picture on the wall and tells him that that spot is within a half day's walk from here. It looks to be an old battlefield where derelict guardians are resting. It's there that he will find what Zelda left behind. The final image takes him to the Ash Swamp. Touching the spot where it was created takes him back once more, right back to before he died. He was gravely wounded and they were surrounded, nowhere left to run. Though Zelda pleaded with him to just leave her there and flee, he refused. He couldn't anyways, it was too late for both of them. As soon as they were spotted by a guardian, it fell upon them to deal the killing blow. But this is what awakened Zelda. She stood in defense of another. A grand power flowed from the princess and everything around them was purified. It was so simple, almost effortless, and she'd done it all on her own. But it was too late for Link. He collapsed on the field and he died before the princess. He sees more beyond his life, though. The Master Sword was finally able to reach out to the princess to tell her to deliver Link's body to the Shrine of Resurrection. Sheikah warriors arrived to lend aid, and under her order, he was taken away to the shrine to be restored to life slowly over the coming years. And he knows what happened after this. He's seen Zelda return the Master Sword to its pedestal in the Korok Forest. King Rome told him that she had gone to the castle to seal Ganon away. Now the story is complete. He's ready to return to the castle to stop Ganon and help his long-lost friend. He knows well what to expect. The castle is covered in dangers and peril. Every road, pathway, and building has an obstacle. There's malice all over the place, and the number of guardians and sentries has made these grounds completely untraversable for a full century. Life has fled the castle, but for as terrible as it has become, there is still hope in it. Hyrule Castle still stands, bits of its past remain. Its halls could be walked once more. It hasn't fallen to rubble. Life could return here one day. Link travels from the bowels to the apex of the halls that he once knew. When he reaches the inner sanctum, it's clear what lies within. Inside the cocoon, Zelda has been fighting the calamity. For 100 years, they've struggled against one another. For 100 years, they've been at a stalemate. And with Link's return, that stalemate ends. Zelda has grown tired containing Ganon. It's drained her of her strength. And to combat the hero of legend, the entity of evil surges against her to break out of its prison. She warns Link that she can no longer hold it back. And after a terrible display, Calamity Ganon falls free and breaks through the floor of the sanctum. The beast and the hero fall into the depths below the castle to what was once the Astral Observatory. The Gerudo Ganondorf is a being of the past. This is the being Ganon in all his rage and power. It has been over 10 millennia and now he finally gets to really stretch his legs. Had Link ignored the call of the champions and not saved the Divine Beasts, this would have been a fight against the Calamity and his Blights. But with each champion's salvation came a side of revenge. Rivali, Mifra, Diruk, and Urbosa all heed the command to strike out against Ganon. With each hit they land, Ganon's health depletes, and with no Blights to aid him, with severe damage done, Ganon is brought to a more level playing field against the hero. Initially, it's difficult to parse out what Ganon's weaknesses are. He's mobile, aggressive, hard to land hits on, and carries an arsenal of weapons and abilities to use against Link. The knight cannot match the physical prowess of the beast, so it's a back and forth between them for some time, with Link taking more hits than Ganon. 
but he remembers that strength can be used against oneself, and he starts using Ganon's own abilities against him, with counterattacks and Daruk's protection. Deflecting Ganon's powers back at him stops him long enough for the Master Sword to do its work, but it takes several rounds between them to cause significant harm to one another. They attack each other methodically from a distance and with frenzy at melee. When the Calamity grows tired of their chess game, he changes his rule set and becomes even harder to hit. While Ganon's aggression remains the same, Link is forced to play more defensively as he can't just beat the hell out of Ganon. He has to reflect his powers back at him to land those hits now. Daruk and Urbosa's blessings are truly salvation to aid him in this. With great care and timing, he's able to drop the Calamity into nothing. This creature of malice and hatred is far from done. When it is clear that the hero will defeat him in this form, Calamity Ganon casts its shell away and flies from the underground, out into the fields of Hyrule. Link is not alone here, though. Zelda is close, and she takes him to the surface, under the free and open sky, to face down Ganon properly. This fight is not over, one of them must die for that to happen. This is the pure enraged form that once threaded the cycle of rebirth as Ganondorf. It's the Dark Beast Ganon, hatred and malice incarnate. To aid the hero in this fight, the princess gifts to Link the Bow of Light, a powerful artifact that has time and time again been used to stop the aspect of power. The two fight around one another until sun sets and turns to rain that shuts out the rest of the world. Striking weak points on Ganon's body with light arrows is the only way to cause it harm. Over and over again, Link circles the beast looking for breaks in its defenses to harm it, until it's so shot full of holes that malice begins to break through its disgusting body. And then Link is able to shoot the source of Ganon's power and strike the beast down. In its weakened state, the Princess Zelda breaks free from Ganon's body and fulfills her role as the Aspect of Wisdom. Zelda's bloodline has endowed her with the sacred power to seal away the great evil. She cleanses the malice that makes up Ganon's body, all but disintegrating his physical form. And when the fetid spirit of evil turns its eyes upon her, Zelda seals it away once again. And then finally, silence. With his banishment, the blood moon sky turns clear once again. The princess is returned to her homeland, no longer locked in conflict with that terrible evil. She too gets to go home, gets to physically walk the land of Hyrule. She tells Link that she knew he would find a way, that she always had faith in him, and though reserved, she boldly asks, Do you really remember me?